In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Be seated. Advent has come once again. And every year, Advent starts the same way. We hear about the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem. But every year, it's the same. And so, the longer that you've been in church, the easier it might be to become a little bit bored with this. I've heard it all before. I know how the story ends. Yes, I've heard that Jesus is coming. Yes, I know about the donkey and the crowd and the hosannas and everything. And so, the longer that you stay around in church, the easier it can be to sort of get stuck, to think that there isn't anything here for you. And this, I think, is also a temptation for those newly confirmed. And it's something I've been thinking about as we've been getting ready to celebrate a confirmation this morning, that sometimes confirmation can feel a lot like graduation. There's intense instruction, an examination, and a celebration. Now, I think most of us probably experienced something like confirmation around eighth grade. So when our kids get to middle school, we say it's time for them to go and learn the catechism from the pastor. And then after they've taken the required class on the Bible and the catechism, we let them choose whether they'll come back to church. Now, I do think that our congregation needs to think about this model, and I'm not here proposing exactly what we should do, but at least at the beginning here to think about some questions. Right, so if, if religious instruction in the Christian faith begins for children only a few years before they leave home, then can we expect our children to remain faithful to this confession and church, even to death? Is it really the best idea to wait to start teaching our children the small catechism until they're almost in high school? Or will this lead to those who just want to get through confirmation and expect it to be their lifelong ticket to the Lord's altar? Will that lead to those who celebrate confirmation and then disappear from the Lord's house? Now, we need to remember that whatever we do as a congregation teaches. Our doctrine says that the Lord's Supper is important for the Christian life. And so that is why we have it every Sunday. The Holy Communion teaches us about our sin, that the death of Jesus was necessary. And we learn at this altar what, that the death of Jesus forgives our sins, that we receive his body and blood for the forgiveness of our sins, for life and salvation. For from that altar, we receive the very lifeblood of the church. And then it seems like there's something that's maybe not quite right if we then turn around and 
say to our children that they can't have it until a certain age. Now, if we teach the importance of the Lord's Supper for the Christian life on one hand, and then delay admitting them to the altar on the other, is that in in their best service? Now, we know that without the blood of Jesus, the church has no life. Without the blood of Jesus, the church dies. Now, maybe not right away, maybe not visibly, but the absence of the Lord's Supper in the church is a critical warning sign. Now, last Sunday, Pastor Mulstrom and I attended the closing service for St. Paul's Lutheran Church in Meharing, a congregation that was founded 128 years ago. Now, I don't begin to know the hardships and challenges that they faced during that time, but one thing struck me as they read the congregation's history, that in all that time, in those 128 years, they never had a called pastor. And they had extended periods without the Lord's Supper. And so I can't help wondering whether this absence of the church's lifeblood was somehow instrumental in their closing. Now, I'm not saying that a lack of receiving the Lord's body and blood will automatically lead to someone denying the faith or a congregation closing. And I'm also not saying that that every child in the church should begin communing, but that we do know that the primary responsibility for raising children in the faith belongs to their parents. Not first the church, not first the pastor, but their parents, and especially to the head of the household. That means the home is the primary place for learning the faith. It's the home where you learn to pray and to sing hymns and to read the Bible. It's in the home where you learn to live out what you receive in church. It's in the home where you live among your neighbors and learn to love them, where you learn to forgive. And so I think we need to ask the question that when it comes to the modern rite of confirmation, even though we've put pious language around it, what if all we have accomplished is keeping our children away from Jesus? And and part of the reason I'm thinking about this as well is in thinking about that for those being confirmed, there is the temptation to think that that they now know everything. Or, if not everything, at least enough that they don't need to learn more from the church. It's the temptation to think that we already know enough about God to sustain our faith. And then, when I think about those Christians who made the martyrs bow at confirmation and then walked away, most of them probably still thought of themselves as good Christians. They weren't trying to leave Christianity behind. Maybe it just sort of slipped. Maybe they found relaxing on Sunday morning kind of nice. 
And so, despite that clear word from God about keeping the Lord's Day holy, it's easy to become too busy for church, too busy for prayer, too busy for generosity, too busy for mercy and peace and forgiveness and faith. There's even a sad way that it seems kind of normal to think about those being confirmed leaving the church. But just because something is normal doesn't mean it's healthy. What's normal isn't the same as what is good. The church, I think, also faces the temptation of thinking that because something has been done a certain way for a long time, we should just keep doing it. That we shouldn't stop to question our practice or ask why, or ask what God says about it. And so, in that way, that this is something that we should always be asking about everything. Because no matter what the topic might be, it's our temptation to think that we know better than God. And if you know better than God, if you know it all, then nobody can help you. If you know it all, then nobody can teach you. If you know it all, then nobody can surprise you, not with an incarnation or a death on the cross or a resurrection from the dead or a savior king on a donkey. And you won't be surprised about these things until it's too late. And when it is too late, these gospel things become law for you. And so we forget what kind of danger we are threatened with in this life. Now we got a, a hint of that danger this morning in the collect, where you prayed that Jesus would come and rescue you from the threatening perils of your sins. Your sin is dangerous. Every sin, all sin. That little white lie, that sigh at your parents' instruction, the glance at your neighbor's work during an exam. St. Paul, in our epistle, says they are works of darkness. A work of darkness is anything in your life that you want concealed in darkness, what you don't want to be exposed to others. And most especially, you don't want God to see. Now why do you want these things covered? Maybe you fear the shame that comes with others realizing what you have done. Maybe there's a way that you want to keep these works of darkness, to hold on to them, because they give you a kind of comfort you don't really want to give them up. That's where Advent comes in. Advent is here to teach you that these works of darkness are perilous. And Advent is here to save you. Notice how St. Paul speaks about these works of darkness. He doesn't qualify his statement. He doesn't say, if you have works of darkness. He says that you have them. And he says what to do with them, to cast them off. He doesn't say, well, if you haven't cast them off yet, then cast them off now. And so there is this recognition of the fact that you have them. 
or at the very least, you're dabbling in them, playing around with them a little. And so St. Paul says to cast them off. When? Next week? Next year? No, now. There's an urgency in his voice. He's urgent because you are not children of the night, but children of the day. And Jesus is coming soon. This is what we celebrate in Advent, the coming of Jesus. In fact, not just the coming of Jesus, but the coming of Jesus for you. And if Jesus is coming for you, then you need to be saved. And so this text before us unites Advent and Lent, Christmas and Easter, cross and cradle and tomb. And so our gospel reading today gives us the theme not only for Advent, but for the entire church year. It's about the coming of Jesus who comes to suffer and die and rise again for the forgiveness of all your sins and the removal of all your works of darkness. This is the church's theme throughout the entire liturgical year. This is the church's life. And this is our only focus. This is what we will never give up, even if the world threatens to take it from us and martyr us. We will not remove our Lord's cross from our gaze, because it's worth more than all the earthly treasure in the whole world. And so listen to this text that makes you a Christian. Your king comes, righteous and having salvation. And if this is what structures our entire year, then we need to hear it every Sunday. You need to hear about the coming of Jesus. You need to hear what Jesus says about your sin. You need to hear what Jesus has done with your sin. For Jesus comes here with gentleness. Jesus never gives up on you, no matter how lazy or proud or disobedient you've been these last 52 weeks. The church never tires of telling her story of the one who came to join you in your life, to live with you, to die as one of you, and in order to make every last wrong thing right. And so how many times has Jesus come to this place and been ignored, or not listened to, or disregarded? Even so, has he ever made himself, has he ever tired of making himself present here? Does he ever give up and want to stop giving you his compassion and mercy? Does he ever wear out of giving you his grace here in this place? Does he ever get worn down by how often he has been rejected and despised? And yet he keeps coming here in gentleness. In that Palm Sunday entry, the people cried out, Hosanna! It means, save us now. This is the prayer of Christians in all times and places. This is the Advent cry for rescue and help and deliverance. This is what we constantly need, week by week, day by day, hour by hour. That's why we take those hosannas of Palm Sunday 
and we sing them at the Lord's altar. Because the one who came riding into Jerusalem on a donkey is the same one who comes here to this altar in his flesh and blood. These two events are unified, inseparably linked by the death of Jesus and the proclamation of his gospel. Save us, our Messiah, who comes to fulfill God's mission. Save us, we beseech you, as you take your rightful throne and extend, sal- uh, and extend heaven's salvation to us. And so sung every Sunday, this song structures and shapes the entire year of grace. It means we don't seek the Savior that we think we need, but the one who rode into Jerusalem, who rode on in majesty to die. In this place, Jesus takes your works of darkness, and he gives you instead the armor of light, the righteousness of Jesus. You stand before your Father in heaven, clothed in the perfect and holy righteousness of Jesus. He is your shield, and you take refuge in him. This is your life. This is the church's entire business. That's why the church is so interested in repeating the truth that creates faith through preaching and the sacraments. It means learning how to receive God's gifts rightly in the divine service, how to pray, how to confess our sins, how to confess our faith, how to forgive our neighbor. That's why the church wants to show how that faith in Christ is manifest in love for the neighbor. Because the church's life is more than just information. It is tangibly lived out in receiving your Lord's gift in the divine service, offering him your thanks and praise, and living out your daily life in love and service and forgiveness to your neighbors. It means that this text shows us our entire reality as Christians, so that we want to hear and believe and receive everything that our Lord Jesus says and gives. It's about faith in his promises. It means knowing what God's law says about your sins, confessing faith in him, praying to him, remembering your baptism, confessing your sins, and receiving the absolution, coming to the Lord's altar for his pardon and peace. And so this means that the catechism isn't something that we throw at people for a couple years as they prepare to be examined and admitted to our Lord's altar. It means that catechesis is more than just imparting knowledge or learning information. It means it's about converting sinners to the new life of faith in Christ by the forgiveness of their sins. This morning, Jesse is confirmed in this faith, and today we'll hear him joyfully confess this faith that the Lord has planted in his heart. He will speak the faith as he has come to know it from the small catechism. And by the power of the Holy Spirit, he will promise to be faithful to this confession and church, even unto death. But Jesse also knows that he doesn't have everything figured out. 
That's why he's here. And the church knows it too. And so every year the church will start over, teaching you again the liturgy, giving you word and baptism and the Holy Communion, taking the forgiveness won long ago on the cross and applying it individually to you over and over again. You see, the church comes to love you who have no right to be loved, forgiving you who have no right to be forgiven. Because thinking you know everything is really an unimaginable burden. It's hard work to always have to have the right answer. And so the church works week after week to free you from that, so that you see how God's way is perfect. And when you are freed, then you can listen and learn, live and learn and, and be free. And you can be surprised that a king comes to you on a donkey, surprised by those weekly shouts of Hosanna, surprised by your king dead on a cross and by his resurrection, surprised by being forgiven and released from the threatening perils of your sins, surprised by hearing his coming in the gospel read and preached, surprised by the cleansing touch of baptismal water and his hand of blessing, surprised by eating salvation. And if you stick around with him long enough, you'll begin to understand what things are truly good, that Jesus knows better than you. That, and that means you'll know what peace with God is all about. His work is not yours. And so as we begin this new year of grace, you will find more Jesus, more wisdom, more love, more mercy, more joy, more peace. Not because you know everything, but because you know nothing but this, Jesus Christ and him crucified. And this means you aren't normal anymore. Normal earthly life means a cruel existence that ends in a vicious death. But you have life in Christ and from Christ. And so every Advent is a new opportunity for a new life together with Jesus Christ. So hear the words of this hymn. I actually heard this from another pastor, and I can't find the source of it, but it's a, it's a beautiful hymn for us to ponder as we begin Advent. Rejoice, O Zion's daughter. Behold, your king has come, the Lamb ordained for slaughter, the humble, righteous one. And having free salvation, he speaks eternal peace. And ruling every nation, his reign will never cease. Has darkness come upon you? Are you in sin's control? This light from light has won you forgiveness for your soul. Nor find in him your effort, nor seek in him your will. His gospel is your comfort that bids your sins be still. In the holy name of Jesus, amen. The peace of God keep your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. We stand.